Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. So some of you probably came here to this retreat with some question in mind, a particular question you're trying to answer. And there's actually a long tradition of people coming to practice, spiritual practice, with a question. So here's one of them. A tangle within, a tangle without. This generation is tangled in a tangle. Who can untangle this tangle? So that was one that was asked of the Buddha, actually, 2,500 years ago. But we can relate to that even today. For some people, the question may have been, uh, about experience of suffering in life, right? which was actually the question the Buddha asked himself. Right? For some of it, maybe, uh, who am I really? For some of you, it may have been, can I actually be silent for eight days? Right? And some of you may by now have forgotten what the question was right? <laughs> and wondering, what am I doing here really? So I thought I'd reflect a little bit about what we might be doing here and uh, share some thoughts about that. So I first uh, came here, as I had mentioned earlier, uh, when I was in the age range of being able to do this retreat. And I remember I came here right after um, a long period of sort of spiritual searching, so to speak. So. When I was a little kid, I had questions trying to understand about, um, like, what is time? Like, what is death? What is life? Things like that. So some of that I did sort of inquiry myself. Some of it I tried to ask other people. And mostly was dismissed by a lot of the grown-ups who I uh, tried to ask. So I learned some things on my own, but uh, also found it a little frustrating at first and then perplexing about why people couldn't answer these questions. Yeah. And I realized that it wasn't that they knew the answers and weren't telling me, which was true about some things you ask grown-ups about, like about sex. They knew, but they wouldn't tell you, right, when you're little. Uh, but it seemed like people actually didn't really know, right? Uh, so some of them came up with elaborate, dodgy answers, right? Uh, so I decided I wanted to be someone who knew. Uh, when I was grown up myself. And ended up uh, trying to study different uh, religions, study these questions, uh, and then found that study approach was not actually getting me to answers either. You know, the Using the mind only got so far. So then I came to uh, find out about the practice and uh, started practicing out in um, Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, where I know many of you are have been also. Uh, found it very helpful. Did some day-long retreats, and then uh, came here for a retreat like this one, so about week, 10-day retreat. Uh, and initially, I didn't really like it, I have to say. Like, it felt very strange here. 
Um, so many of the things people have been observing, like it's kind of a strange environment, right? So people are not looking at each other. It can feel sometimes kind of unfriendly. Right? People moving around slowly, right? Uh, like what's, what's going on with that? How is this related? Right? But I felt some great connection with the practice itself. And also I felt some connection with the teachings that were being uh, shared here. So I felt like these are some grown-ups who know, you know. They know something that I want to know about. And through doing the practice, I was able to see these things in my own experience. So Buddha was a guy uh, who lived a long time ago. And then uh, he went on his spiritual quest. And the Dhamma, the truth of the way things are, is actually not something that he kind of concocted. It's not something he made up. But it's something that he discovered through his own inquiry. And then has provided some guidance for the rest of us to actually look into that ourselves. So it's actually not something that you have to uh, hear about and believe at all. It's something akin to, uh, say, the law of gravity. So the law of gravity uh, tells us that, say, if I take my watch here, try and place it in midair, right? It will fall to the ground. So that's actually not personal to me, right? Uh, it's just kind of the way things are. Right? So I might think, well, that was just a fluke, right? I'll put it over here. <laughs> or maybe I put it higher, right? It'll stay, right? But no, it falls again, right? So if I throw it up, no, right? And it's not personal, you know, it's not like, why, you know, like that, right? <laughs> It's just the way things are, right? So we actually don't know about law of gravity when we're first born necessarily, right? And you see, actually see little kids uh, experimenting with this and learning about this, right? <laughs> so I have many um, friends now who have uh, little kids and babies, and it's kind of fun to watch them um, exploring their world and learning about these things. Right? So they're in their high chair, you know, learning how to eat, and then they'll like drop their fork over the side, right? and watch it, you know, with interest as it falls, right? And then usually the adult will come and pick it up and bring it back over to them, right? And then they'll do it again, right? <laughs> over and over, and it, uh, it's, it's very interesting for them, right? Uh, and then after a while you realize, uh, you know, you get the hang of it a little bit and it becomes more taken for granted. And we live in harmony with the law of gravity. So most of the time, as uh, people who've been around for a while, we tend to live in harmony, so I don't try and place glasses of water in midair, right? <laughs> we know where to place them, right? On tables and so on, if we don't want them to break. Right? So similarly, actually, the things that um, Buddha discovered are things that we can all see in our experience, right? Uh, we don't see them, and because of that, it causes us suffering, right? Like, we're not actually living our lives in accordance with the way things are. So the more we're actually able to align ourselves that we live harmoniously with the way things are, the less suffering that we experience and the less suffering that we cause other people. So we get some kind of approximations of this in some of the guidelines that we have for uh, our practice and for retreat. So for example, um, living according to the precepts. So not um, killing living beings. 
or speaking truthfully. So if we're naturally aligned with the way things are, these things come very naturally to us, right? And in the moments in which we feel in the flow and feel connected, uh, it feels like, yeah, that's, that's the natural thing to do, right? And times when we feel disconnected and aren't connected with that, then uh, we might deviate from that. So it's said that someone who is enlightened naturally follows all of those laws because that's in, in harmony with the way things are. So a little bit about the story of, uh, of Buddha. Um, so he was uh, born into a family that was a very wealthy family. Some would say he was a prince. And this is a long time ago. So this is like 600 BC, right? So around time, Lao Tzu and Socrates. So a long time ago, you know, before the 1950s, before, you know, medieval times, before, you know, take it back, take it back, take it back, 600 BC, right? So people going around in ox carts, and there's some blacksmiths, and uh, in northern India there are these kind of feudal kingdoms. So he is born into one of these families uh, as you know, sort of the equivalent of a, a prince. At the time of his birth, uh, his father is told by a sort of seer, fortune teller type person. Your son will either grow up to be uh, a great ruler or a great spiritual teacher. Right? So dad himself was the great ruler. So guess what he wanted his son to be? Right? He wanted him to be like him. He wanted him to be uh, also take over the, the kingdom there. Uh, so he did what he could to try and prevent him from going along the spiritual path, really. So how he tried to do that was to protect him from any reason why he would be dissatisfied with his life as this prince. Right? So they had a nice uh, palace. They had actually a different one for different seasons. And uh, he had musicians around him. And only young and beautiful people were there around him. And he got to participate in like uh, fun sports. Uh, and basically, his whole life was set up to have a good time. Right? So this was, you know, worked out for a little while, and then he started to have some interest in leaving the palace and actually seeing what's around. Uh, and his father tried to dissuade him from uh, taking interest in this, but he kept insisting. So finally, said, "Okay." But before allowing him to go out, he did a kind of sweep of the whole city to try and make it all look good. Right? So try and avoid him seeing uh, anything that would cause him to question life or question his current state. Right? So a little like what they actually do in some cities when uh, you know, foreign dignitaries come, or uh, <laughs> even in, uh, in Hollywood, right? you know, and, uh, uh, in movies, you know, they see good-looking people, right? young good-looking people. So Buddha went out with his charioteer first time, and uh, everything was looking pretty spick and span. And, uh, you know, looking pretty nice. But then out of the corner of his eye, um, he catches sight of someone who is actually very old. So they're stooped over, they've got, lost some teeth and gray hair, very frail. So he says to his uh, charioteer, Channa, like, stop, what's that? Who's that? So Channa knew the game, but he also was being asked directly. And he said, well, that's an old person. So what do you mean an old person? He said, oh, well, that's what happens to all of us. 
you know, as time goes on, we're going to get old, and that's old age. So, but I was disturbed by this. He went back, thought about this. I said, oh, I want to go out again. Right. So once again, they do a clean sweep of the city. Right. Goes out, uh, and this time, you know, everything looks pretty good. But then, uh, along the side, he sees someone who's very sick, right. someone who's ill, and uh, he asks. So, like, what's that? And Chana says, oh, that's someone who's, uh, who's sick. He says, what do you mean, sick? He said, oh, that's what happens to most of us at some time or another, and uh, his body is suffering. And uh, so, well, I thought about that, went back to the castle. Next time he, he goes out again, and this time he actually sees from the corner of his eye this, uh, people carrying a corpse. Right? So he hasn't seen that one before. Many of us may not have seen that in uh, our society here. Right? And he says, now what is that? Right? It's a still body. And Chana says, oh, that's, that's a, a dead body. It's a corpse. So what do you mean by that? He says, oh, everyone will die. That's where it's all going. You know? It'll be a corpse. He said, you and I, all of us, are going to die. Everyone in the palace. So this gave him great pause. Went back. He's mulling over this, like, what does this mean about life, right? There's these elements that he had not seen before. You know. He and everyone he knows is going to get old. They're not going to be young and beautiful all the time. They're very likely to get sick. And then also everyone's going to die. Right? So he goes out for the uh, last time, and then he sees uh, this spiritual seeker. So at that time in northern India, there was a sort of category of people who were spiritual aspirants, who wore robes and who carried alms bowl. So much like what Bhante uh, looks, may look like. You know. And that is a sign of someone who has gone, renounced their home life, renounced all their possessions, and is interested in understanding life, understanding death. Right? So he asked who this person was and was told that this was um, what this person was up to. And he was very inspired by that went back palace and uh, he told his father that he wanted to go and uh, look into these questions like that. He said no, he couldn't. But he finally left in the middle of the night, um, went off to uh, try and understand. So he renounced everything and went off to become a spiritual seeker. So at that time there was many different sort of schools of spiritual practice and he could go around and practice with this teacher and learn what they had to say, practice with this teacher. So he practiced with one teacher for a while and learned some of his practices. Uh, he learned some very high-level concentration practices. So actually during the time that he had learned them and when he was in those states of concentration, uh, it seemed like he had found the answer. So there was not actually uh, old age, sickness, death to be found at that time. But then when he came back, it was back again. Right? It was only a temporary kind of fix. So that wasn't satisfying to him. He pressed on. Found another teacher who taught him also some more rarefied states. But similarly, when he finished doing those kinds of meditations, learning this concentration, came back, it was back to the same thing. Right? He tried practicing all these austerities. So at that time, there were some people who were practicing um, eating very, very little food, uh, and flagellating the body right, and uh, 
causing all kinds of austerities and hardships, saying, you know, it's the physical body that's the problem, right? So he tried doing those, and uh, it said he got very, very thin, like so thin that when he sat down, the print of his buttocks was like a camel hoof, right? And he could reach through his stomach, and he could touch his backbone, right? And his eyes were sunken in, and... Um, but that also didn't help him. Right? That didn't help him to answer his question about the end of suffering. Right? So then he actually remembered at some point a time in which he had been uh, in a natural state of some amount of concentration uh, when he was a child. And he thought, oh, maybe this, this could be the way. He was relaxed. Right? He was present. Uh, so he decided to, to uh, take a resolution that he wanted to look into this. He wanted to find the answer, the end of suffering. He ate a little something, so he'd be a little stronger, sat down, and took the resolve that he wasn't going to get up until he understood, until he saw through. However long it took to sit. So more than 45 minutes, he was ready to (laughs) sit. So he sat, and he sat. And as he sat, some of the experiences that he had are ones that uh, you might recognize. So it's said that he was uh, assailed by the armies of Mara. So Mara is kind of this uh, figure that uh, visits the Buddha at different times in his life and uh, brings temptation, brings fear, various things like that. So when he's sitting, Mara's armies of fearsome things come to attack him. The things that could make him afraid and make him leave and want to forget his his, uh, quest. But he's able to stay steady with that. So they come, they assail him, all these scary things, sit steady with it. Then the next one that comes, armies of actually beautiful things. So beautiful bodies, things that would cause lust, cause him to be distracted, right? Why not go back to that nice time in the palace when he had everything? Right? But he managed to stay steady with all of that. Right? So all these different things are coming at him. And the final one that comes at him is actually Mara asking him this question, so doubting him in his quest. So who are you that thinks that you can understand? Who are you who, are you who thinks you can see through to the end of suffering? Right? He recognizes that as Mara, so he doesn't give that up give up his quest with this. And this uh, statue that you commonly see of Buddha with the hand like this down the ground is the gesture that he makes, touching the ground, saying that the earth is bearing witness to my right to be here. And that moment said that the earth shook and that he was able to pierce through, became an enlightened being. Unshakable liberation of mind and heart. And was unable to review and actually understand the path that he took to get there, uh, review many different aspects of consciousness, of reality, such that then later on he could actually come back and teach. Right. So many of this, that this pieces of the story could be familiar to you. Right? So when Buddha left on his quest, he was actually 29 years old, so he could have come to our retreat, in fact. Uh, He practiced then for uh, six years in these different austerities. And then when he sat, you know, even in this last final sitting of his uh, spiritual quest, he experienced many of these same things that we experience when we sit. 
So these are actually kind of common uh, patterns that come up for people. And he described them also uh, as what's sometimes called the five hindrances. I like to think of them more as like the five sort of most common weather patterns of the mind-heart that can throw you off. So it's good to get to know these, right? to get, become familiar with these. And the, the meditation practice we've been doing so far is uh, one of trying to collect ourselves. Right? So you may have noticed that uh, we actually lead these lives that are pretty distracted. Right? So the practice we've been doing so far has been to bring, bring some collectedness. Right? So we've been having a primary focus, and then when we find that we're off of that, try to notice that and come back. Come back, come back. So this is some way of actually drawing our energy together. There's a lot of power in bringing this energy together. So then we can use this this focus to actually look into what is the nature of our life? What is the nature of our existence? What is suffering? What causes suffering? So we can actually do this ourselves. So as we do this, many things come up which people have asked questions about in the hall. And uh, we'll go through these top five weather patterns, the five hindrances, right? so we can get to know them a little bit more. So we'll count down backwards here, like they do in the late, late night shows. So number five <laughs> is doubt. Right? So uh, doubt is the one that he faced in the end. And when you hear this, you might think, like, oh, this sounds like you want us to believe everything you say, right? And it's, it's not actually that. In this uh, path, in this tradition, inquiry is encouraged. Right? That's what brought you here, and that's good, what's going to take you along. Right? And you all may have come with a different question, and it's good to follow that question. It's good to follow what your authentic question is, I think. Right? My authentic question in the beginning was not about what is suffering, but as I came and sat it became clear that this was also a good question to ask. Right? Uh, so the kind of doubt that we're talking about here is a more skeptical doubt. Right? So you decided to come here on this retreat and give it a whirl here, you know, give it a try with the practice. But then while you're sitting here, there may be some thoughts of like, well, maybe I shouldn't have done this. Maybe I should have gone uh, to that yoga retreat instead. The yoga retreat, and you start thinking about that or that, you know. Or you start thinking, you know, maybe uh, I should be using a different object. I should be using this object. No, I'll switch to that one. No, I'll try that one. I'll try that one, right. So all of this is actually the experience of some doubt, right. And the doubt can be something that actually stops us from actually doing the practice that will help us to inquire, like help us to see into these things. So it's helpful to just notice when this comes up. Like, what is this experience of this skeptical doubt? And to become familiar with it. So in all of these uh, different states, it's good to become familiar with the energetic pattern in the body, in the mind. And it really is like becoming familiar with a weather pattern. So I used to live here on the East Coast, and I feel pretty familiar with the weather patterns here. And then I moved um, to California. And I remember when I first um, moved to San Francisco, I get up in the morning, I was very happy to be there. It was the summertime. I look outside, and it would be all gray, right? kind of cloudy. Right? So I'd take an umbrella, 
to work. And uh, I would notice that um, no one else was taking umbrellas, but uh, I wondered why. No one could see, obviously. <laughs> rain, rain was a strong possibility, right? And then, uh, you know, by the afternoon it would clear up. It would be okay, right? The next day, look outside, same thing, gray, foggy, right? Take the umbrella, it would clear up, right? So after about a week of doing this, I asked my coworkers about this. So, you know, both, you know, why is no one bringing umbrellas? And, uh, you know, how come it never rains? And they said, oh, you know, that's actually just the fog. You know, fog comes in the morning here. It's part of the weather pattern here. Usually it burns off by the afternoon. In fact, it almost never rains here in the summer. So you can just leave the umbrella right, at home. <laughs> so I had to get to know that weather pattern, right? Get to be familiar with that. And now I know that, right? And the seasons are very different there. So here in the summertime, it's very uh, lush. It rains, right? It's green. There, actually, in the summertime, it's very dry, right? So you don't get the rain. So the hills turn brown, and it's when you get the forest fires and things like that. And then in the wintertime, we get the rain. So in the wintertime, it's actually very green. So similarly, it's good for you to become familiar with what's the weather patterns of your mind here. Right? So what does it feel like? So sometimes you can tell you know, when it's going to rain, there's a certain kind of wind that comes through. right? It feels like it's, it's going to rain uh, here. And then uh, soon it'll start, right? And there'll be a thunderstorm. Right? So we can start to know also sooner and sooner these patterns. Right? So sometimes you'll know only when you're very much in the middle of it. Right? And that's OK. So whenever you're able to notice, it's good. Right? and then feel what that is, right? become familiar with that. Um, other times as you go along in your practice, you'll begin to notice sooner and sooner, like, oh, this is the beginning of this. So this is the beginning of that doubt, and I can feel that. Right? So just trying to feel, okay, so this is doubt. What does it feel like in my mind, my body? Right? And it's usually something which is like, you know, should I do this or should I do that? Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? So you can feel that energy, right? It sort of, sometimes it can be like a buzzing energy, right? sort of that way. And it's not just when we practice that we experience this, right? So in your regular life, you probably have had strong moments of doubt. So it's helpful to just become familiar with this pattern, right? So you're not paralyzed by it. Right? So the next two, number four and number three, kind of paired. And this has come up in the hall a fair amount. Uh, and these are like energetic patterns, the body-mind. So on one hand, we have uh, restlessness, and on the other hand, we have drowsiness and dullness. Right? So many people are familiar with this from our first days of retreat here. Right? So the drowsiness, dullness, it also reminds me of the weather sometimes in, in San Francisco, particularly in the evenings. So in the evenings, this fog comes back and it actually creeps over the hills. And it's almost like an animal or something. You know, it just comes like this over this Twin Peaks Hill and goes down in the valley. And, it always hits certain neighborhoods, and you know, certain neighborhoods get missed by this, right? Uh, so drowsiness can be like this, right? And in the beginning, you might notice drowsiness when you're actually asleep, right? And you wake up. So that's okay. Then you've noticed that. Right? Other times, you can start to notice when it begins a little bit, right? So uh, starting to feel like slow energy. And where is that? In the head, you know, in the body, in the, the hands. Feeling this low energy, the sinking mind, right? So become familiar with that. The sooner you can become familiar with it and just know, like, that's what this is, it doesn't necessarily have to be a problem. 
So among the things you can do with this, this drowsiness, sleepiness, some of which we've discussed here, is to actually bring some energy to it. So bring some interest to it. You know, what does it feel like? Right? Uh, where does it start? Where is it affecting me? Right? You also bring in more light. Right? So actually open your eyes, let some light in. So this is kind of like actually if you're driving in the fog, right? you have to turn on your headlights right? so you can see. And you can't see very far sometimes. But you still know, OK, it's foggy. Right? It's, it's not the same as being pitch black. Right? It, this is fogginess. So you can be aware of that in your mind, body. This is fogginess. Also, you can stand up. So that's a totally legit meditation posture if you're feeling drowsy. Um, Notice that you're sleepy. Then notice, like, okay, it's good to stand up. So stand up with some awareness. And then you can do the same meditation standing. So this is helpful because it takes some energy to stay upright, and it's less likely you're going to fall asleep standing. Also, sometimes you can bring some more energy to the particular practice that you're doing. Right? So energy is actually an antidote for this. So restlessness, we had some questions about in the hall. And I remember when uh, Rebecca asked, many people raised their hand for this experience of restlessness. I remember having this a lot when I first came on retreat. I did my, this first uh, nine, 10 day retreat after doing a bicycle trip across the country. So I rode my bicycle with a bunch of people from Portland, Oregon, to Washington, D.C. Took 10 weeks every day, 8 to 10 hours on the bike, and then come here and just sit. <laughs> I mean, you're sitting on the bike, but you're putting a lot more energy, right? So I had a lot of restlessness uh, come up, you know, like wanting to move, right? And, uh, you know, someone had described it really well. Like, you feel like your brain is just going to bounce off the walls, your body, you're going to explode, right? Uh, and it's like that sometimes. So this is actually what it is. So just becoming aware of this and seeing like, oh, this is, this is the experience of restlessness. This is what it's like energetically. Right? And one thing that's helpful with this is to actually expand your awareness. So actually give it kind of a big pasture to run around in. So OK, so my mind feels like it's going to bounce off the walls. So bounce, like let it bounce. You know? I'm going to sit still. So like Buddha, you say, I'm going to sit centered with it. But go ahead and bounce. Right? So expand your awareness. So some uh, analog for that is uh, you can do this with your sight. So for instance, for now, if your eyes are open, um, you could be looking at, uh, say, directly at me. And then you're kind of focusing, right? And then you can expand your sight awareness so you can actually see this whole front area here, right? So you can see everyone, all of these people sitting here, the lights, the statue, right? So then it's kind of a more soft focus open, yeah? So like that with awareness. So if you want to go kind of detailed, you can focus on you know, breath or sensation, kind of tight, just kind of like micro lens. And then also you can expand out, become kind of macro lens right, with your awareness. So give that restlessness a big pasture to like bounce around in. And then just feel it. You know. So accompanied with this one is usually some thoughts. Right? So also be aware of these thoughts. So i got to get out of here. Right? Uh, when is it going to end? I've got to stop, right? all this stuff. So these are just thoughts that are kind of part of the package. Right? So with these different weather patterns, there's usually an energetic feeling as well as thoughts that arise. Right? So become familiar with them. Right? 
Interestingly, also, this restlessness is paired uh, with remorse. So sometimes the experience of remorse can be very similar to this. So if we're sitting and come some memories of things that we've done that we regret, uh, sometimes we can have a similar experience of feeling like we want to jump out of our skin, right? we want to uh, leave. So similarly with that, just try and be steady with that. Like, that's what this is. This is this experience. You know, allow it to be there. You know, allow it to live out its energetic life. Then we have the top two here, also kind of paired, are ill will and hatred. And on the other hand is sensual desire, so the wanting mind. So now that I've run through these five, you might be thinking like, oh, you missed some. Buddha, you missed some, right? So the biggest obstacle to my meditation is actually my knee pain, right? <laughs> right? My back pain, you know, neck pain, shoulder pain, yeah, foot pain. That's the five, you know, right? <laughs> so if not for that, I could easily sit just like the statue, right, for hours on end. But this is really the obstacle for me, right? So... This is actually considered not an obstacle itself. And it's very helpful to be able to see this, that the pain that we have in the body is actually an unpleasant experience. There's no doubt about that. No one's going to quibble with you about that. So it's not something you would want to give to a friend. Uh, It's not something that you prefer to experience necessarily. But it actually is just intense sensations in the moment. And you can actually be with intense sensations. You can actually be with intense sensations with a certain presence without having to want them to go away. So you probably have done this at certain points in your life uh, when you know that something is happening that uh, is unpleasant, but maybe, okay, you know it's good for you, right? So say you get an injection, right? And you know it's going to hurt, yeah? But you know, like, okay, overall this is good for me, right? So you can sometimes experience that pain Uh, without having a whole story about it. Like, you know, it's going to last for a certain amount of time. Just be with the sensations. So it's actually very helpful to try and practice with these unpleasant sensations. And this is really practice is what we're doing here, right? Because it turns out that you cannot escape these in life. So at different points in our life, we'll have pain come up in our body. Uh, so you might say, like, yeah, if you don't try and sit for, you know, eight hours a day, right, there would be less pain. But even without that, there's different times when we'll have difficulty and pain in our body. So I had, um, last year, a, a bad injury playing soccer. So I got my knee completely whacked, so popped a ligament and sprained another ligament, and the bones mashed together, and uh, really bad injury. And actually, in the moment of that happening, uh, my mind instantly went to absorption in the sensations. And I didn't even think, I must now go to this sensation. It just, from so much practice, uh, was able to drop into that and just experience the sensations, purely as sensations. And it was such absorption that I was not even aware of people talking to me and so on. Right? So it may have looked like I passed out, but I know I was not passed out. Right? I was actually completely present with what this experience was of intense pain. And it was an incredibly transcendent experience. And it was bearable, you know? It was limb torn from limb, terrible, but it was actually bearable. 
in that moment. Like there didn't have to be a hating of it. There didn't have to be a pushing away of it. And it gave me a lot of faith in my practice. So all the times that I sat there, decided not to move with pain, decided to explore it, stay with it, practice with it. Yeah, I feel like that helped to train the mind to have some equanimity with when something unpleasant came up, difficult. So I had a, a control experiment, experience with this because uh, maybe uh, before I started practice, had another bad injury. I dislocated my shoulder. I was playing rugby. And at that time, I didn't have a lot of practice. And I remember the fear. You know, I remember being scared. You know, this, this bad injury happened. Um, and uh, there was not only the pain of it, but there was a lot of fear uh, and a lot of story and a lot of uh, other stuff all around it. So Buddha teaches that this is actually us shooting a second arrow. So the first arrow that we get is pain that happens, right? Just from having a human body, we're subject to pain. Then we shoot ourselves the second arrow, which is our story about it. Sometimes it's like, this shouldn't be happening to me. Sometimes it's like uh, the fear or not wanting it to be there. You know, all this stuff. And actually, a lot of that stuff that's surrounding it is actually worse than the direct experience itself. So I remember, you know, having that experience the first time and how difficult that was. And then in the second experience, that the mind just was trained to do that and being so grateful for the practice for that. So some of you may also say, well, you actually missed another one on the list, should have been there, uh, which was distraction of uh, someone else breathing loudly. (laughs) So someone in my neighborhood where I'm sitting, it's like breathing for six people, you know, (laughs) and that's what's really distracting. If that person was not making that loud sound, then I would be able to be completely focused, concentrated, right? So once again, this is actually just unpleasantness of sound, right? There's a sound that's happening. We're experiencing it unpleasant. And then this ill will and hatred towards that sound. So our hating of the sound. So the thing that is actually the obstacle, the hindrance, is our hatred of the sound. It's not actually the sound itself. So it's not the knee pain itself. It's our hatred of it. It's our aversion to it. It's our pushing away of it. So check it out and see, you know, where's that line there? Like, if I can actually be open to an experience that's difficult, right, is that different than when there's an experience that's difficult and I don't want it to happen, right? pushing it away? Yeah. So one more that also didn't make the list, you might think, it's left off, of distractions, obstacles to practice. So you think, you know, I just noticed there's someone here who's so attractive, very cute person, and if I just didn't have to have them around, then I would be able to practice. But there's just such a distraction, right? So this is actually a common phenomenon, which we call the Vipassana romance here. (laughs) So uh, you're practicing, minding your own business, keeping your eyes down, and then maybe you notice someone in line, the lunch line, something like that. You notice they walk very mindfully, It's really very beautiful how they walk there. <laughs> Clearly very sensitive individual, right? <laughs> and then you start to see them around a little bit and you notice like, oh, you know, they sit very still also. <laughs> I like that about them. <laughs> so pretty soon you're imagining, 
you know, your conversation with this person, when you get a chance to talk to them. And uh, you figure out a lot about them just from this uh, silent sitting and walking. So you <laughs> have a lot of ideas about what they're like and what kinds of things you'll do together. And uh, imagine going on a trip with this person. You know, uh, imagine the great relationship. It'll be a very spiritual relationship. Yeah? Um, you'll sit to get together twice a day for sure, right? So uh, you think yeah, this person is really the distraction. So in fact, actually, no. Uh, I can see from where you're laughing that you can tell that uh, you know, this, we're making this all up, right? So we see something, we experience it as pleasant, and then we create giant projection around it, whole story, right? Uh, and it's all in our mind. Like, we have no idea who this person is, right? But the mind is used to this. The mind is used to looking for things that are pleasant and seeking them out. You know, seeking them out as, uh, uh, with this uh, desire, right? With this lust, sensual lust, it's called, right? So that's seeking out pleasant sights, sounds, tastes, smells, and so on, right? And in some ways, I think this one is one of the most poignant because it's a sign of our desire for unity, for wholeness. So there's a moment in which there's some separation, we see something else, and we want it, and we want to be unified. So there's actually some expression of our general deeper desire to have wholeness, to have unification. Only thing is we extrapolate it to the outside, to this other thing. Actually, the thing that is the obstruction for us is this force itself of the wanting, of the wanting. The thing in and of itself can be enjoyed. You can enjoy something pleasant, be with it, it's great. It's when we start to want it more, stretch out for it, reach for it, basically become obsessed with that, that it becomes a problem. So Buddha actually asked the practitioners when he's teaching the monks, is there any obsession unabandoned in myself that might so obsess my mind that can I, I cannot know things or see things as they are. So we're trying to see things as they are, and then there are these different things that obsess us. Right? So not just passing, coming and going, but obsession. Right? And you can see sometimes how there is really a fill-in-the-blank quality to this, you know, to what our object is. You know, a sort of like insert photo here. You know, right? So it's like we have this whole you know, framework set up, and we're just looking for someone remotely you know, plausible to plop into that thing. You know? Or even some remotely plausible you know, sensation to put in there, right? something to look forward to. Right? And this is really all part of us sort of making up the world, right? making up the world and then believing it, making up the world and then believing it. So it's all also part of us not seeing things the way that they really are. So what is the way things really are? Is that no thing is actually a thing. So no person is actually a person. Everything is changing. So in our experience, there's constant flux of thoughts, constant flux of sensations constant flux of emotions, right? We actually look into this 
what our experience is, there is this real fluidity to it. Right? So and there's a fluidity to other people, quote unquote. Right? So because everything's always changing, and this is one of the marks that Buddha taught of existence, any experience, any existence. Right? Everything's always changing. There's no one solid center to anything. Uh, everything is moving. Everything is made up of parts. We can conceptualize it and see it as something, but when we solidify around it is when we make it a problem. Right? We don't let the flow continue. So because of this, then, we have an experience of life that is unsatisfactory. Right? So there's the parts that are already difficult about getting old, getting sick, there's the parts about not being able, able to control, uh, being close to some people, they move away, not getting what you want, uh, getting stuff that you don't want, the sounds happening that you don't want. Right? Uh, many of you have this uh, experience of finding that your meditation experience was not what you wanted, right? In like overt or subtle ways, there's a way in which we want a better one, we want a different one, right? And all of this actually causes us suffering, right? Causes us stress, you know, causes us strain. So here's a list that you might recognize. Tomatoes, green pepper, red onion, celery, scallions, honey, garlic, cucumbers, lemon, wine vinegar, tarragon, basil, cumin, cilantro, Tabasco, olive oil, black pepper. So what's that? Gazpacho, right? So that was all on the little tag for the gazpacho, right? So what is the gazpacho, right? So it's made of these different elements. And all of these elements came from different places, right? So the tomatoes grow in one place. Then someone picked them. It came on a truck, brought here, unloaded. Similar with the celery, right? The honey made by bees in one place, right? Collected, you know, ordered by some of the people here, came here. All of these ingredients came from different places, right? Came together. Then the cooks, through their hard work, uh, put together. And many of you actually were probably chopping those vegetables, right? You remember that? So put together, and all this morning it was not gazpacho, right? It was a box of tomatoes and some honey and this and that, right? Then maybe this afternoon it started coming together. They started cooking it, right? Uh, then maybe about uh, 5 o'clock, 5.15, gazpacho is born, right? So they put the pots out. So there's the gazpacho. As soon as it takes birth as gazpacho, it actually already is uh, dissipating. So even the onions starting to oxidize, right? The water is starting to evaporate, right? But to make it go even quicker, we come and everybody served some, right? Uh, and then it got eaten. So where's the gazpacho now? Right. So it's here. <laughs> so it's here among us. It's become all part of us, right? Uh, so what's the gazpacho now? Right? It's actually room full of meditators here. Yeah? <laughs> and it's changed form. Now it's becoming part of our bodies, right? Fuel. Maybe some of it got put in uh, compost, and then that later will go uh, and, f and ferment somewhere, right? But so we call it gazpacho, and that's a moment of experience. Yeah, that's what that is. But it really is part of this whole flow, right? And it's part of a whole flow that is interconnected, right? With a lot of different aspects of 
ourselves, life, and so on, right? So we've been here for a couple days and been eating roughly the same food. So actually, we all have been becoming sort of uh, made of the same things, right? So oatmeal, some uh, raisins, got some bananas maybe, some gazpacho, got some seitan, right? So all of that has become uh, part of our body, create energy, right? Similarly with water, right? So we're supposed to be made of like three-quarter water, yeah, our bodies. I believe I've heard that it takes seven days for your water to kind of cycle all the way through. So this is another thing we all have in common, that we're half made of the same water now, right? So another few days we'll all be uh, made of IMS water here. (laughs) So the large part of our body will be made of this similar water source. So nothing is really any one thing. Even this, what's happening here, this retreat, right? So several days ago, people came from all different places, right? So from New York, Massachusetts, California, Hawaii, different places, right? Connecticut. Uh, so you can imagine like this coming together, you know, if we just focus on this retreat for a moment, this coming together from all different places of this group of people. And then now it seems to be like kind of idling here for a little while, right? But it still is all in motion, right? Because we're all, our, our bodies are in motion. Uh, everything is changing, but it apparently is like here, right? And then in a couple of days, then that dissipates again. And this is actually what life is all happening. It's like a kaleidoscope, you know, turning, 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 right? A physical body, the mental body, mental elements, right? It's just this constant kaleidoscope of change. Right? So we don't see that and we solidify around things. We think this is solid and this is solid, right? And then our usual recipe for being happy is thinking like, if I get this, then I'll be happy, right? Or if I get rid of this, then I'll be happy, right? So as soon as I finish school, then I'll be happy. School is so difficult, right? Then I'll be happy. Or as soon as I uh, get over this fight I'm having with my family, right? as soon as what happens, uh, uh, with my girlfriend or boyfriend is resolved, right? As soon as I get healthy again, I'll be happy, right? So the truth is that everything is always in flux, right? And if you think about your life, say maybe there's 10 major categories of things that you pay attention to, right? Of your health, maybe school, maybe relationship with your family, right? Uh, your friends, your love life, uh, for some people also creative life, right? And all these things kind of going up and down. So some of these things are going well, and some of these things are going not well. So usually our recipe for how to be happy, and what we think is going to make us happy, is if everything gets to 10 at the same time, right? (laughs) So, you know, we'll put all this effort into getting everything to be at the tip top, right? And then we hope it's going to hang there, right? You know? And the truth is that everything is always moving. So it's all dancing around. So you notice this, right? So sometimes one thing is good and the other thing is bad. Sometimes five things are good and three are bad. Oftentimes there's a relationship between them, right? So maybe if you're working a lot, you don't have as much time to exercise. So your health isn't as good, right? Or uh, if you're spending a lot of time in school, then you're neglecting your family, right? These different things. There's trade-offs. And this is actually the way things are. So this is part of the way things are. And it's never going to stop. It's never going to stop. The change, the kaleidoscope of our bodies, of our mind, of our experience is never going to stop. So our seeking happiness 
in trying to find this frozen point where everything will be good forever is really an illusion. And there's really a poignancy of our continuing to try, you know. And this is the misguided mind, the misguided heart, not seeing the way things are. Uh, you have to appreciate yourself for trying, but we're trying in the wrong way, right? So it makes sense. Everything is changing, so nothing is one thing, so I can't grasp things, right? So intellectually we get that, but actually, in terms of our experience, we'll find ourselves constantly going for that, constantly trying to get everything to 10 and hold it there. Or think, actually, when this is finished, then I'll be happy. When I get this, then I'll be happy. So what our path is about here is actually this practice of seeing into this more and more deeply. And not on an intellectual level, but actually on this deeper, deeper level at which we're holding things. This deeper level in which we're holding on and in which we're constantly hoping to get the experience that we want that will keep us happy. So as we see into through our direct experience, that this is actually true. It's all just cascading. And not just externally, actually what I call me, right? The more we can actually let go. The more we can let go, the more we can actually be in the flow of experience. And then the possibility of seeing into what is the true nature of myself? What is the true nature of everything? So we have this opportunity here to do this practice. And you know, these elements that to me first seem very strange of not talking to people and not looking at people and so on, now I actually take them as uh, sort of conditions for us all to be successful in this exploration. Right? So I think about it more like, or I've experienced it more like how, um, say if you're in a library and you're reading books, right? you're reading a book, and there's someone else reading a book there, someone else reading a book there. Right? And you're doing your own learning, uh, but you're doing it near each other, right? And you're kind of supporting each other in doing that. Right? For those of you who don't like libraries, it uh, could be even if you're at the beach, right? And different people are lying on different beach towels, right? And you're not interacting with each other, so you're each having your own experience of nature, and so on, right? Uh, but you're able to do that in the vicinity of each other. Right? So actually doing this exploration, looking into our own mind, body, experience, looking into uh, who I am, what causes suffering, all of this stuff, is not easy, right? So we're all supporting each other by allowing each other to have this experience, right? So they're not looking at each other, not talking to each other thing is actually just um, being respectful and actually being kind to each other to allow us to directly have this intimacy with our own life, intimacy with our own experience that will allow us to awaken. So it's one of these things where nobody can do this for you. So we all have our own questions, and we all have our own path here. So your parents can't do it for you. Your best friends can't do it for you. We can support each other, which is what we're doing here. Uh, Teachers can't do it for you either. If you're feeling sometimes like disconnected and lonely, I think one of the helpful things is that we taught the, the loving kindness, kindness practice. So actually you can wish well to people, you know. 
So if you're out sometimes somewhere, uh, you can wish well to people right, who are going by. They won't know it you know, uh, silently if that's helpful for you. Right? You can also just drop into that experience of loneliness, whatever it is. I've come to a different understanding of the practice that we're doing here and see this as actually a very rare opportunity. So you don't actually have to be pretending to be someone. You don't have to be asking people how they are all the time. You don't have to be pretending to be happy all the time. Right? You can just be how you are here. You know, it's just fine. So I appreciate all of your practice here. It's inspiring also for me, I think for all of us here. Uh, and we're all on this quest, you know, in some way or another, similar to what the Buddha went through. Yeah. So you have your own questions, and you have your own path, and own turnings and twistings. Yeah. Uh, but follow through with that, you know, follow your questions. Uh, and I bow to all of you for being here. So thank you. So let's just sit together for a moment. Anicca vada shankara upadavaya damino upajitva virujante tesang upasamo sukho. All conditioned things are impermanent. They arise and pass away. Understanding this deeply brings the greatest happiness, which is peace. Thank you for your attention. We have half hour for a walking period, and then we'll come back for our last sitting meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.